Bible, if you will, and turn to the last chapter of the book of James, James chapter five. And we, we approach now the end of the book of James. We have this Sunday and one more to finish James. But as we, as we approach this end, I call last Sunday's paragraph on, on uh, patience and endurance in trial, sort of the beginning of the end paragraph. This is the continuation of that. And now our attention turns to prayer. Uh, the book of James is a book that addresses not only the, the faith-works relationship, but also the suffering and faith relationship. And here in this paragraph, James is going to reinforce the centrality of prayer, especially in difficult seasons. Um, prayer is the, is the spinal column that supports your walk with God. Like your spinal column, your prayer life is not evidently visible at a glance, just like your spinal column is not evidently visible at a glance. But your walk with God will suffer just like your physical walk suffers if something is wrong with your spine. The gate of your walk with God, your confidence in your walk with God, your steadiness in your walk with God, all of those things will suffer if your prayer life is not what it ought to be. And so James chooses it as, as one of the last significant topics of this intensely practical epistle that God the Holy Spirit gave him to write. James 5, 13 through 17. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. This paragraph gives us just a tremendous amount of information and encouragement about prayer, so let's dive in. Roman number one on your outline, if you're tracking with the outline, is pray when there is suffering. The very, very lead cause in this paragraph, if anyone is among you, if anyone among you is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Now if he's cheerful, let him sing praises. He's not suggesting that cheerful people shouldn't pray any more than he's suggesting that people in trials shouldn't sing praises. Whether suffering or cheerful, you should pray and sing. But he's saying that there's a, there's a heightened emphasis that should come on prayer in a time of suffering. We tend to be task-oriented, you and I. We tend to be pragmatic and practical. And so the temptation is, when there is a season of suffering in our lives, to find out what we're supposed to do about it 
and go do it, to, to take action, to resolve the problem. And while that's not all bad, it can cause that the priority of prayer sort of get lost in the noisy shuffle in our time of difficulty. We need to prepare in advance to know what we need to know to pray when things are bad. It's hard to sort of prepare when the suffering's going on. Prayer and suffering is one of those things, like Adrian Rogers, my, my now in heaven former pastor used to say, you better learn this one in the light because you're gonna need it in the dark. Pray in time of suffering. So if you're in a season of suffering right now, pray. And I offer you this, without possibly knowing the full anatomy of your suffering. I can't possibly know all that's wrong for you today. But Jesus Christ is Lord in your trial. In fact, Jesus Christ is Lord over your trial. Jesus Christ ultimately is Lord of your trial. And you can be confident, and I'm not being flippant, that your trial ultimately is intended for his glory and your good. And you say, Brother Russell, how can you say that? It hurts. And surely a God who's always nice wouldn't let me go through things that cause me to hurt. Well, be careful ascribing to God an attribute he does not have. He is kind, he is loving, but he's not always nice. As C.S. Lewis puts it repeatedly, speaking of his metaphor for God in Aslan the Lion, he constantly is reminding the little children in the Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan is not a tame lion. He's a lion that has to be dealt with on the lion's terms. And the Lord has as his main interest for you that you will grow in character as a child of God, grow in the image of God expressed in your life. That's his main objective, and he has no difficulty whatsoever in using a season of pain to accomplish that purpose. But in that season of pain, he would have you not distance yourself from him, but cry out to him. Pray when there is suffering. Roman numeral two on your outline, pray when there's sickness. Now I put sickness in quotes there for a very deliberate reason. Because this is one of those times when I'm gonna invite you to consider that there, there may be more going on here than just a surface reading of the text might, might first indicate. Let me, let me be absolutely clear on the front end. There's no doubt that physical sickness is part of what's in view here. I just believe that some of the specific word choices made by James under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit cast a broader idea here than just physical illness. There's something larger than physical illness being indicated, I believe, by the text. And I'm gonna walk you through this um, and, and see if we can't see it together. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? 
Now that word right there, that word sick, translates the Greek word astheneo, which is used many, many times in the New Testament. Sometimes it is used for physical illness, there is no doubt. But sometimes it has a broader or different meaning. For example, in Romans 4, 19, there's an example of speaking of Abraham. During that time in the Old Testament character Abraham, in his life, when God had told him he was going to father a child biologically, though his age was quite extreme, God made him that promise and then God put him through a period of about a decade of waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And Romans 4, 19 describes his struggle during that period, but it says he did not, he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. That word there, weaken in faith, is exactly the same word that James uses in chapter five, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Could mean weakened in faith, soul fatigued, soul sick. It's a perfectly legitimate use of the word. Reading on, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. I am so thankful that though I am one elder of this church, I am one of 15 elders of this church. And when I need to be prayed for by my pastors, I praise God that I have 14 of them whom I can call upon to pray for me. Um, we can obey this passage because in our church we know who our elders are and we thank God for their ministry. Let them call and let them pray, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. My best understanding of what this oil is, it is a symbol for the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is, I believe, not the clearest meaning that the oil has some sort of, of medicinal value. That doesn't seem to fit the context very well. In both Old and New Testaments, oil is repeatedly used as a symbol for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is, now verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now he uses a different, even more unusual word for sick there. It's a word that occurs only three times in the New Testament. Here, and Hebrews 12.3, and Revelation 2.3. In Hebrews 12.3 and in Revelation it, it just doesn't mean physically ill. It means something, something perhaps larger. In Hebrews 12, 3, the Bible says, consider him who endured from sinners, speaking of Jesus, you, you consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted there is this word that is in James 5, verse 15. Faint-hearted, the idea of soul fatigue. In my trial, and remember, we've been talking about patience in trials in the previous paragraph, here, prayer in trials. In my trial, it's beating me. It's weakening me. It's wearing me out. 
And I don't know if I can take another step. I don't know if I can make it another day. My soul is tired. My faith is weak. My burden is heavy. Might that include a trial of physical sickness? Of course, of course. But it's broader, I believe. I need to call upon my under shepherds to come and pray with me, to come and encourage me, to come and lift me up. As I, as I have said in your notes, I believe letter B in view here perhaps and consistent with the context in weariness is weariness and sickness of soul. That's consistent with both the immediate and the broader theological context, especially if soul fatigue here is somehow related to sin because he continues with the idea of if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. And it's not that those periods of trial and suffering are always directly connected to sin. They can be. Surely by now, if you've been paying any attention at all, you've figured out that you can send yourself into a trial, right? You can put yourself in circumstances that, that certainly are not what you'd have chosen for yourself by your sin. You can do that, but not all trials are related to personal sin. Just as a trial can, however, be related to personal sin, trials can also aggravate a sin problem. We get in that, that trial, we get in that season of suffering, and it's hard, and it presses us, and it burdens us down, and it wears us out. And maybe in that depth of that trial, there's a particular vulnerability to some sort of self-compensating sin. Some sort of, well, it's so bad for me, I, I deserve this indulgence or this stupid behavior or this sinful act or attitude. And so trials can sometimes be connected to sin, both <laughs> in a cause way and in an effect way. Maybe not. That's why the, the next clause that speaks of sin leads with an if. Maybe there is sin connected with a trial, maybe there isn't. But the statement then make, is made, and this is Roman three on your outline, pray when there's sin. Pray when I'm suffering. Pray when there's sickness, whether physical or, or soul fatigue. Pray when there's sin. If anyone has, or if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins and pray for one another. First, letter A on your outline, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, speaks of the power and freedom that comes from confessing our sins to the Lord. No third party can pray to the Lord for your forgiveness. They can pray that you will see your way to repentance. They can pray that you will, you will see your way to open your heart to the Lord and ask his forgiveness. So what's in view here is encouragement to pray for forgiveness. 
The Lord knows your faults. We just sang about it a moment ago. He's got the whole resume on you. Pray and ask him to forgive you. If you are a child of God already, this is the ongoing life of confession and repentance before God that keeps your your fellowship and your connection with him clear. Have you ever ever come to a season in your spiritual life and maybe I'm the only one, but I bet not. If I describe it right, maybe somebody else will say this is them too. Have you ever come to a place in your spiritual life where you feel a bit stuck? Where you feel like, okay, I, I don't see growth. I don't see myself being challenged as I ought to be by the word of God. It just seems like I'm in a spiritual season of stuckness. And I know that's, you know, high-flying theological terminology, but I bet you can follow me. Anybody but me ever have the occasional season of stuckness? Okay, I'm not completely alone. You know what the big red button is for a season of spiritual stuckness? You know what the big red button is, right? It's the one that they keep under a lock, and you have to unlock the button, unlock the cover, open it, and only push the big red button if you mean it. The big red button when I'm in a series of stuckness is, all right, Lord, what is it in my life that's hanging me up? Lord, don't show me the whole thing. I might not be able to bear it. But what one sin in my life right now is grieving you most? Woo, you better not pray that if you don't mean it because you know what? God the Spirit will show you. You might not be ready to see it yet, but I want to encourage you. If you're in a season of stuckness or the next time you are, get honest before God and say, God, maybe I'm not seeing it. You probably are, by the way, but he'll sure light it up for you like a Christmas tree if you ask him. Lord, not the top five sins in my life. I don't feel like being overwhelmed today. Just the one. What is it that's hanging me up in my walk with you? Just a suggestion from an old brother. Letter B speaks to the joy and relational restoration that comes from being humble and transparent with each other. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It's impossibly difficult to maintain effective relationships if we all have to pretend we're better than we are. Because we're not. The people that I have the most effective relationships with are people I can say to them, hi, I'm Russell and I'm a broken jerk with a catalog of grievous flaws, most of which have the potential to drive my close friends crazy. The closer we get, the more crazy I'll make you. Hi. Oh, and by the way, I already know that to be true about you as well. (laughs) And so now that we've gotten past that, maybe, just maybe, we can walk together till we all get home. There's a joy that comes and a freedom that comes from effective relationships when we can be transparent with one another. And then the privilege of praying for one another.
I, I wonder sometimes what our prayer lists would look like if we, and I'm not suggesting this because I think this might create some sort of weird explosive mutiny. So just as a thought experiment, play with me for a minute as a thought experiment. What if for one month in all of our life groups and all of our other small groups, every time we ask for prayer, what if we said you're not allowed to have a prayer request unless it is some flaw of your own? We're gonna take, take a month off from praying for Aunt Edna and her cracked ribs. And if you have an Aunt Edna and she has cracked ribs, let me know and I will pray for her before I sleep again and I sleep on Sunday afternoon. I'm hoping that's a safe example. But what if we did, said instead, as for this week's prayer list, I lost my temper with my spouse again this week. Pray for me that God the Holy Spirit will reign in my temper. I have my 1040 loaded on my computer at home and I am sorely tempted to cheat on it again this year. Pray for me that I won't be a thief on my tax return. What if our prayer requests were more reflective of the Spirit of confessing our flaws to one another and praying for one another. Hmm. Just a thought. Notice that in this paragraph, broadly speaking, of James 5, 13 through 17, we see prayer in, in three different particular lights, all of which are very valuable. We see personal prayer in verse 13, let him pray if he's suffering. We see pastoral prayer in verse 14, let him call for the elders and let them pray over him. And in verse 16, we see peer-to-peer -peer prayer. And we pray for one another. Oh, how we ought be a people of prayer. Finally, Romans 4, we have pray in difficult situations. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, says verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is a powerful thing. Okay, got it. That's what James 5.16 says. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. A lot of y'all been around the Bible for a long time. And as you read James 5.16 about the effective prayer and powerful prayer of a righteous person, it might be in the cross-referencing part of your brain where the word of God that you know pops up with internally generated footnotes, you spot a little issue with James 5.16. Righteous person, huh? Zip over to Romans 3.10 and tell me how many righteous people there are. Zero. And in case you want to argue, no. And in case you want to argue again, not one. That's what James 3.10 says. There is none righteous. There's a comma for you to argue. And then no. And there's another comma for you to argue. And then not one. So is James 5.16 some sort of cosmic bait and switch? You ought to pray because the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful while it's working. But see, Romans 3.10, there aren't any righteous people. Gotcha! 
Is that what's going on here? I rather suspect not. There is a means. In a world with no righteous people, there is a means to righteousness. You can't get it on your own. You can't work for it. Well, I've done some bad things, but I'm gonna do some good things. You're like a mass murderer who thinks by weeding his neighbor's flower bed, he can expunge his record. Your good things can never expunge your record, and you've got a record. The history of your high treason before a holy God, every single sinful act recorded and held against you by a holy God. The same book of James that we've been studying says, if you've kept the whole law and yet broken only one eensy-weensy part of it, you're guilty of the whole thing in a crashing and inescapable avalanche of guilt. And there we are. And let's face it, none of us stopped at one tiny violation of the law. Oh no, we've been racking them up for some time. What shall we do? The death of Christ on the cross is, uh, is best understood, biblically understood, in substitutionary terms. The Bible says that he who did not know sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is a say hallelujah indeed. There's a substitution of records. And so from the time one of us unrighteous people cries out to Jesus, turning from our sin, hating our sin, despising our own sin, but crying out to Jesus to forgive us and to take up the lordship and mastery of our lives, which in truth we've botched anyway, at that moment, your criminal record in heaven is not merely set aside. It is demolished, vaporized, gone forever, and in its place, child of God, in terms of your criminal standing before God, is the flawless record of the resurrected Christ, substituted in your place. Might we still sin? Certainly. Might we still need to work on the fellowship part? Okay, Lord, I think I messed that up again, didn't I? Yeah. Lord, I'm sorry. But in terms of our declared position before God, it's righteous because of Jesus. If we have turned from our sin and trusted Jesus Christ and him alone by faith. When I make the following statement, I am not asserting it to be true about me, for I am a jerk and very much a work in progress. But by Jesus' divine and unappealable declaration, 
I am righteous. You think too much of yourself. No, I think little enough of myself that I cried out to Jesus and he kept his word and he saved me and has declared me righteous. So when I pray, I have the full attention of an omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving, living God. So do you. One more time, James reaches back into the Old Testament for an example. As he did with the prophets and Job and other things through the book, now again he turns us to Elijah. And he cites a period of three and a half years of rainlessness in the life of the prophet Elijah. That, that, that moment that James is referring to is in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And honestly, it bleeds over into 19 a little bit as well. Um, the story of Elijah includes all of the following things happening to him during that three and a half years. First, he has an ongoing conflict with a very powerful but very evil king, King Ahab. In that season of his life, he encounters poverty, including a literal scarcity of food and water in the, in the paragraph around the widow of Zarephath. He deals with death and thankfully resurrection around the widow's son. In the first paragraph of 1 Kings 18, he deals with Obadiah. Now this is not the prophet Obadiah, this is a different guy. This is Obadiah, sort of the, the chief of staff in Ahab's household. It's a funny paragraph, you ought to look at it. 1 Kings chapter 18, fear and reassurance. And then of course the, the, the big moment from 1 Kings 18 is the conflict with the false prophets of the false god Baal who is hysterically cried out to by his false prophets and does, as is his power, precisely nothing since he doesn't exist. And then when Elijah simply calls on the living God who is, the living God responds pretty dramatically. It's another great story if you've not read it lately. And even in the wake of that great victory, chapter 19, letter B on your outline, finds Elijah worn out, depressed, Hopeless, sick in his soul. So what does he do? What is, what is James wanting us to remember about Elijah? He prayed. He prayed. And in response to his prayer, if you read 1 Kings 19, at a time of, of depression and hopelessness and physical wit's end, he receives renewed purpose, a divine reminder that he was not alone, and reassurance that his future was secure. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God. <laughs>